0: You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is Mark Iaconelli. Mark is a writer, retreat leader, community builder, spiritual director, story catcher, husband, and father. He is the founder and executive director of The Hearth. Previously, he co-founded and served as program director for the Center for Engaged Compassion, where he helped develop a unique set of practices and training programs for assisting individuals, organizations, and communities in cultivating compassion. Mark is the author of six books, including the one I will talk with him about today, Between the Listening and the Telling, How Stories Can Save Us. Well, welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for being with me today.
1: Good to be here.
0: Um... The book is wonderful. Uh, it's important. Um, and there are so many quotes that can be unpacked, so many insights that you've said that could be unpacked. Um, and it's, it came across to me as a story about the power of story. Hmm. Um, and so uh, where I wanted to start um, was you, you said that from your father, Mm-hmm. you learned about the power of story. Mm. Uh, from your mother, you learn the complexity and messiness of life that doesn't often fit into a storyline. Mm-hmm. And that on your own, uh, you learn that the power of story is not in the telling but in the listening. Mm-hmm. So how about unpacking each of those three <laughs> for us? <Yeah. clears throat> well, there's a lot
1: behind all that. Yeah, so so my, my father was a, uh, you know, I knew him as a pastor in a small town in a small church, but he was the um, international Toastmasters speaking champion when he was 27 years old <laughs> and um, was a very popular speaking in the Christ- speaker in the Christian world and spoke all over, well, all over Europe as well, particularly in the end of his life. And so he was a dynamic speaker. He was a great communicator. It was very common for me to be in a room as a kid and he would finish uh, speaking at a conference or uh, some kind of a church gathering. And it was not uncommon for people to give him a standing ovation. I mean, he was that kind of a dynamic, funny, and moving speaker. And often what he counted on was stories. So, so he, he might try to make some interesting points and and, and did and was very perceptive and, and used language in a very creative way. But it was his stories that I think really captured people, that, uh, both in their humor and their poignancy, and of course as a kid, not always knowing what he was talking about theologically sometimes, in, in his talk. but I could connect to the stories, and the stories took me to a place, and even when I had heard those stories 10 or 12 or 13 times, because he would have certain ones that he worked with, I would still find myself taking that uh, ride that, that a story can take you on, and feeling that emotion, and so, so that's the first power of story that I encountered was the way it moved people and the way it transferred emotion and the way it connected all of us in the room so that we're all silent at the same time. We're all laughing at the same time. We're all choked up at the same time. My mother um, suffered with uh, schizoaffective disorder. And, um, and so when I was uh, 14, I, I really encountered it with her and, and it was you know, stories she would tell to us about the mafia or government officials or uh, someone was was sneaking into the house and doing things. And at first, I believed these stories because I didn't have any reason not to believe them. And then it was only later that I recognized uh, there was something wrong. She and my father were divorced at the time. there was uh, just my mom and and the kids. And we had to piece this out that these stories weren't real, and yet they were real to her. And that's that complexity part of stories. And, of course, as we look at our culture, you know, uh, stories are used in advertising to manipulate us. Stories are used in politics to draw up fear and anger and resentment and um, kind of anxiety or a, a grasping need. And, uh, and so that's where I kind of encountered that, that complexity of story that, that is life and doesn't fit neatly um, the way we want it. And then I started using stories as a relational tool. That, that story, when, I, when someone tells you their story, it's a hospitable act. They're, they're welcoming you into a part of their life. And if you listen well, if you're present well, you get brought into uh, another person's life in a way that evokes compassion and empathy. But that only happens if you're willing to really listen, to really open yourself to them. And that, that's that power of listening. That's a part of all the way in which story becomes a part of healing, uh, and all healing modalities rely
0: on story, but it's the listening part that brings that makes that healing available. Um, you you, you had a quote uh, by W. H. Auden, Auden uh, that says, "Art uh, is either escape or parable." Uh, and kind of as I understood that, is part of uh, the distinction you kind of make between. Uh, story as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. uh, uh versus story that's healing. hmm Um kind of clarify the difference in your mind and how those two interrelate. Well, you know, so so we're all in this age, um
1: we imbibe hundreds and hundreds of stories every week, right? Whether it's podcasts like this or or um streaming services, movies, um, media, social media. We're, we're taking in stories all the time. And what Auden was saying there is that, you know, we need story as distraction, as an escape from the mundane, as an escape from the heaviness of life. And so, so sometimes we do need escapist kind of stories. But then there's another kind of story that Auden's talking about that teaches us how to unlearn hatred and learn love. And those, those are stories that have a, um, that have a, a, a moral purpose or are seeking to draw forth the depths of who we are as human creatures. And we need those stories. They're, they're soul food. A friend of mine, well, he's passed away, but Brian Doyle's an organ writer. He, he was, um, had Irish roots, and he would talk about... Um, a sanaki. and a sanaki is a story catcher in the in the Irish tradition. And each village would have this a story catcher, and a story catcher would try to collect and uncover and carry within them stories that were that could be used in different occasions. And Brian said that a believed that if the whole village was starving, they could live off stories for up to a year. <laughs> you know? There was no food. That that's how nourishing stories can be, and we and we do know that at times there are times when you hear a story, whether at a funeral or at a wedding or a sacred occasion, and that story you feel nourishes some deep need within, and um, and we need stories to function that way as human beings.
0: Um, how do you because your focus is more upon on on the second on the healing part, yeah. and and and. Uh, so how do you how do you uh, understand what you do uh, in relation to like a formal counseling experience or a or a group therapy experience? Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and, and I and I and I don't I'm not trained as a therapist. I mean, I, I do have training as a spiritual director, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't see myself working in a therapeutic mode, although stories are connected to healing. Um, so I use story in communal settings. So I might in my own town have nights where people are standing up and telling stories. Maybe the theme is letting go and we're raising money for a new hospice house. And I'm going to have six people stand up and tell a story about, uh, maybe an encounter with death and the community comes and hears those stories. And there's something about the communal nature, having those stories told among neighbors that is healing in the way that um, uh, our bodies, what really happens when we tell stories is our bodies co-regulate, our nervous systems. When we feel seen and, and held and connected to a group of people, there's a kind of way we relax and we come home and we feel calmed. Therapeutic model often is, well, first of all, I have a particular understanding of psychology and how your mind and emotional system works and as you talk, I'm sort of running th- your, what you're telling me through that system, trying to identify the problem and cure it, <laughs> you know, in some way. Whereas in storytelling, we're just trying to connect to one another. Every time I tell a story, what I'm saying to the listeners is, do you feel me? Can you feel me? You know, um, you know uh, my daughter just uh, just left home and she's the youngest and she went to college for the first time and we're empty nesters for the first time we come into the house and it's just quiet quiet and there's <laughs> and there's no yeah. nobody needs a ride anywhere nobody's coming over and it and it's almost like the sound of loneliness in yeah. our house you know now when i tell that to you i'm trying to say can you feel that with me and it sounds like you've had that experience too just by your face yeah so we connect in that right and in that connection there's a kind of we, we kind of know something about each other and there's a kind of healing in being connected. I'm not just alone in the grieving of a daughter leaving. I'm known in that. And that can be healing. So that's the way I use
0: story. in That, okay. in that kind of way. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've had the uh, blessing of um, being under the uh, guidance uh, of a woman here in Asheville mm-hmm. uh, named made a commerce mm-hmm. and uh, she and you, she and you, Use uh the same vocabulary hmm. uh in that what she does, and particularly with racial healing, mm-hmm. is what she calls story medicine yeah um so in, in 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 what way do you do you use story as medicine because you use that language as well yeah
1: um and of course I, I I have some friends who who have uh you know who are native. Who, who also use that language. story is story as medicine and, and, and as one of the folk medicines, you know. Um, well, in a number of ways, you know for when I have people stand up and tell a story, there's an opportunity for healing in just being heard and seen and known. and story can do that. Um, st- story is full body communi- uh, full body meaning making. And when I feel seen, heard, known, felt, theres a relax relaxation that takes place. And so that's one way the medicine can work. It's just anytime we tell stories in groups, but I've been brought into communities where there's been a school shooting or I've been brought into communities where there's tensions around race or communities where there uh, are work settings, you know, uh, activist groups who are trying to um, address climate change, but they're filled with anger and despair. And you start getting them telling stories together and they feel deeply seen and known and connected. And relationship is resiliency. And story draws forth relationship. But, but there's another way too, and, and maybe this, this friend of yours were, uses it too. You know, one of the healing medicines is anytime we go outside in nature. And the, the reason it's healing is it awakens our senses. We, we hear the birds. We see the colors in the trees. We, we, we smell uh, the lilac or the, or the lavender. And our senses are awake. And we're not in that anxiety-managing brain. We're, we're out in our senses Story brings us into the senses, so he, when the story's told well, it pays attention to what um, to the senses, and we see, hear, and feel things when another tells a story, and that moving out of the anxious brain into the body is healing. Okay.
0: Okay. Oh, and, and and you talk uh, more about how each part of the story process. Uh, does something for the other part, so that the the listener does something for the teller, and the yes. teller does something for the listener.
1: Yeah, this is kind of what I mean about a, a relational practice. Is um, it, there's a sacred tra- transaction that happens between teller and listener. But if I'm telling you, a, uh, if I'm telling a person a story, and they're looking at their phone and they're looking at the watch and they're not really paying attention, the, I stop talking. The story dies. But if somebody's right there with me, you know, and they're willing to journey with me, the story has life. But that transaction is you're offering your presence, you're offering your listening, I'm offering a part of my life, and it's an exchange of gifts. And in that exchange is where that power of story resides.
0: Well, uh, the story that I remember you telling where uh, a woman stands up and, and kind of shares her experience, and afterwards... Uh, all the women in the audience came yes. up to her, uh, yes. and you talked about how her story released in them their story.
1: Yes, yes, and th- this is a this is a common experience. So, I just did this. We're you know we're in Black Mountain here, I think. Right? Is that where, yes. is that where yep, I am? Yep, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> we were in. Uh, we're not too far from the town of Asheville. Right. So uh, a few nights ago at New Belgium Brewery. I uh, facilitated a story event and we had some local people telling stories. The theme was lost and found. They were raising money for an organization called Beloved that helps the, uh, the homeless. Beloved Asheville. Yes. Beloved Yeah. Yeah.
0: Amy Cantrell.
1: Okay. She's wonderful. Okay. So those folks were there. We had about 90 people in the room, including a group of 20 or 30 high school kids. And one of the people who told a story is, um, Jay Chong, Jay Chong eats and she's a, she's a private chef and she has this food. Um, And as she told her story, she talked about kind of um, the pain of being Asian in a culture, particularly she talked about a period of time just a few years ago where there was a lot of anti-Asian violence and the pain of that. And there were others who came to her after that story who had similar stories of discrimination or being threatened in this culture. And through her story, it released others' to come together and talk about their own private fears and suffering around discrimination. and um, That's what we can do when we tell our stories is we, we help each other get free.
0: Well, one of the things I was struck with in, in your um, kind of equipping us to help others tell their story, uh, you mentioned uh, three tools, I guess. Um, you focus upon the importance of the kind of questions that draw out stories. Yeah. Uh, You also talked about um, different story patterns Mm -hmm. that you uh, teach people in order to help. And then uh, you talk about story as a map. Mm -hmm. So questions, patterns, and map.
1: Well, I mean, I don't think I spell it out that clearly in the book. <laughs> you, you're, you're putting it in that order. I mean, um, because it's more of an art than a science. I mean, what you're talking about is the, you know, how I accompany someone who wants to tell a story or so- story catching. And, um, but, you're, but, but you're, you're, you're right. I mean, my tool is questions. And if, you know, for example, whoever's listening to this right now, if I asked you, um, when was the time you were betrayed? Or... What's the moment the first time you encountered snow? Or um, what's a, 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 a time when you felt comforted when you were suffering? As I ask those questions, I'm guessing if you're listening right now, or the, your first kiss, you know, or the time you got in trouble when you were a kid. Every time I ask those questions, I'm, my guess is an image pops into your head or some moment comes into, some memory shows up. And when I'm helping someone craft a story, I'm asking questions to draw forth different images and, and moments in their life that might stay in the attic if I didn't ask about it. So, you know, I, I did an event um, at Montreat Retreat Center that's just down the road here. And we had about 60 people in the room. And I asked them to remember a time someone was compassionate to them. Someone showed you compassion or someone showed you kindness. And, you know, I had people say, after they shared them in small groups, I haven't thought of this man in 35 years, or I haven't thought of this experience in 10 years. One person said, this moment changed my life. I haven't thought of it since it happened until you ask the question. So helping people craft stories is often helping them savor and recover their their life experience. And then when you start to put it in a story, yes, I, I have a feel for story, how stories rise and how they fall and the the way story changes. I have, I, I have I have... I know the patterns that are boring. I know why we don't want to listen to Uncle Bob anymore at the Thanksgiving <laughs> table, you know, because his stories don't go anywhere and have no point and nothing happens in them. You know, um, there's no change. There's no movement. And we need that movement to fill the vitality and, and soul struggle of another human being. And then they are, yes, they are a kind of map, you know, when you when you tell a story Our our experiences are complex and they go in a lot of different directions. But anytime I tell a story, I'm choosing certain experiences and I'm lining up. Like if you've ever seen a toddler or a kid on the floor and they've got all these toys scattered up and then they start to line up the cars or they line up the blocks. And when you tell a story, you're choosing things and making decisions about what to line up together. And uh, so when I work with a storyteller, I'm trying to help them choose and decide what do they want to line up in order to communicate This is what I've been through. This is what I've suffered. This is what uh, brought me joy. This is the emotion I want you to share with me.
0: What are some of the patterns that you actually kind of (laughs) teach folks? (laughs)
1: Well, now I don't. I do a training, so I train people in community storytelling, and I do trainings in the art and craft of storytelling, and I do train do the patterns there. Um, when, When I'm working with an individual, I'm listening for the pattern that they that they carry. That they want me to hear, so I'm trying to uncover a pattern that's already there. But when I'm teaching patterns, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a pattern called man in a hole. You know, where where someone uh, is going along, life's going great. You know, they've 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 got the let's say they're married with two kids, and they like their job, and and then it turns out um, their best friend who they'd been investing with had embezzled all their money, or their wife's having an affair, or even more tragic, a child dies or something, and, they, and everything falls apart, right? So that's a downward movement in the story. And then in a novel or a movie or a tale you tell me, we then watch them crawl out of the hole. They go through grief counseling or uh, they fall in love again or they rebuild their lives and find another way to live. So that, that, that story goes sort of like level, then it drops, and then it comes back up. There's a shape to, to that kind of story. The story we tell in America, right, is the story we love most is Rags to Riches. So that's an upward trajectory. I was down low. I had nothing. I worked hard. I became a success. That's the story we love. And um, uh, we don't so much like the story of dissent. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And we definitely don't like stories that kind of go up and down, you know, uh, randomly. Although those are the stories that match our lives most likely. So you get, you get to know the shape of stories and, um, and how they bend. And when I'm working with someone, I'm often trying to figure out what is the pattern of this experience. And that leads me to ask certain questions that, that
0: lights up different parts of what they're trying to share. Well, I want to go back to you because you, you touched on it. Um, the relationship of story in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you kind of approach that in a, in a couple of ways. One, you, 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 you actually say that we're neurologically wired mm-hmm. uh, toward story. Yes. And talk about that a little and then we'll do the other. Well,
1: I mean, think about like when you wake up and you had a dream. How do we tell the dream? We, we, we tell the dream in story. I was standing outside of a, a, an ice cream store and this bus pulls up and a rhinoceros was driving it. And suddenly I got on there, but I was thinking, this is weird. I didn't know animals could do this. You know, <laughs> but we're telling it as a story. We're, we're choosing to, to line up the experience to help someone walk through it with us. Um, so one of the, th- one of the things they have done studies and Paul Zach is, is one of them. Uh, they've, they've studied ha- what happens when someone tells a story. So they put the wires on your brains, mm-hmm. you know, and they watch the brain patterns. So if you and I sit down at a table together, our brain are firing in different patterns and different ways. But then one of us starts to tell a story. And if I tell it well, and I pay attention to the body in my telling, and if you're listening, well, our, brain patterns will go in sync and they'll start to move in the same way and like i said earlier so that when i tell a tense part of the story a tense part of your brain lights up and when there's a release when i get away from the bear you feel that you know your brain also those parts of your brain lights up as well so there's a neurological patterning that happens that goes in sync it's a kind of communion that a story um um, can become and it's also a way that we um You know, when we've gone through trauma and pain, that's in our nervous system. It's down in the primal parts of our brain. And um, telling a story or telling my experience, uh, not necessarily of the trauma, but telling any story where I feel accompanied, where I feel like you're walking with me through this experience, even if it's about um, uh, a time when I was young and I used to pick blackberries and make pies with my grandmother. If you go into that story with me, I feel accompanied and seen and some of, that, uh, some of that body tension releases by just, because we're relational beings, and I feel known. And story is a way we feel that relationship and connection.
0: Well, yeah, because I, I, that, that kind of gets to the second um, thing that I was wondering about in, in relation to story in the body, because uh, you talked uh, about uh, Resmaa Menachem uh, saying that... Untold, yeah, My Grandmother's Hands. Yes, yeah, his book. Un, yeah. untold stories reside in our bodies uh, and have body consequences.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, I think his line is, um, you know, when we're traumatized or hurting, it's, there's an untold story in the body. And I think my, you know, I, I Maya Angelou also says there's no greater suffering than an untold story. And so our bodies carry these experiences that, that cause tension and pain and trauma. Uh, you know, trauma, one of the reasons it's trauma is it hasn't been released from the body. It's, it's Captured in our nervous system, and it needs to be um, it needs to be released. And
0: story is one of the ways we we release it. You draw a lot on uh, indigenous wisdom, uh, world wisdom, uh, yeah. and especially the practices of things like silence and meditation mm-hmm. um, and song. Yes.
1: Yeah. I mean, these, these folk medicines are indigenous to all people. You know, you go back in the roots of all peoples and they have song and they use silence and they have ritual and they have story and they have dance. Um, You know, these things are, are primary to being human. And, And one of the reasons we're suffering right now, and there's such an increase in anxiety and depression and uh, rising rates of suicide and all these things is we don't have these communal practices. We've relied on Western therapies, which mean I go into a room with one other person. <laughs> you know, I pay them one hundred and fifty dollars, fifty minutes, yeah, and uh, and I talk. You know, in a, in a using emotional language or whatever. But we used to have communal practices. You know, rites of passage for young people and. Uh, so, honoring the seasons, you know, like they do in the Christian tradition of Lent and, and the spring rites of Easter and, um, you know, uh, Christmas, that bringing light into darkness. And we need story and public rituals. We need those folk medicines that bring the body in and, and we do together that can regulate us and, and bring us
0: sign of health. One of the... Um things you said that, that is part of all wisdom uh, that the pandemic kind of made us aware of is that um, uh, it created a disorder that's yes. necessary for transformation and that there's so, so that there's order disorder and reorder and reorder yeah that's what, so, so there's a story pattern for you right there right is um, you
1: know, there's one storyteller who says the way a story works is you describe a world something happens and then you describe the new world and this is the same thing we're talking about here. Order, disorder, reorder is also the way of spiritual growth. So, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to get control of things. <laughs> you know, we want control as, as fragile human beings. And we want to control our environment. We want to control other people. In fact, the more wealth we get, the more control we have. This is like the goal of having a lot of money. If I have a lot of money, I can control other people. I can control my environment. I can control my experiences what i eat where i go i have more control but that leaves us more and more isolated disconnected and it doesn't bring around growth what brings about growth is disorder it's things falling apart is um when we have to release our control and surrender and allow new perceptions and, and new uh, a new sense of ourselves a new sense of others to break through uh what we've artificially crafted, if that makes sense. And that's a story. (laughs) You know, spiritual growth follows a story pattern.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, and and another uh, dimension from, uh, you know, the the wisdom culture, uh, you you made the reference uh, that uh, a Native American insight of the distinction between authentic and inauthentic story.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is... um, Barry Lopez, the, 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 the writer, organ writer, another organ writer, Barry, Barry Lopez, talks about uh, spending time with, with Inuit tribes up, up in the north, up in Alaska, and that um, they had this definition of story, and an, an authentic story is a story about us, and an inauthentic story is a story just about me. Now, anytime you tell a story and you dig down deep and you sit in your own human experience, the language can be really personal and individual, but the theme of it will be about us. So even a little while ago when I was talking about the experience my wife and I are having with our youngest leaving, that's personal and unique to me. But as I tell it, it's, it's your story too, and it's the story of many parents, that empty nest story. So... So that has a deeper resonance. Its purpose is not to elevate and please my ego. The purpose is to marvel and contemplate um, a human truth.
0: Okay. Um, Let's go back a little bit and touch on uh, the fact that um, story can be empowering or it can be destructive. Because you touched a little bit on the (laughs) fact that 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 happens uh, with... Uh, commercial, you know, the advertisers tell a story that, that that our politicians tell us stories about ourselves. Uh, and, yeah, and so talk a little bit. Well, about those two dimensions of what yeah, story I make.
1: mean that's what we're going through right now. So you know, you know racism is a story that's called um, you know just horror and un- unaccountable violence and and destruction. You know, and it's a story it's just so in some ways it's like that's all it is yeah it's a story but it's a story that has power and and impact and shapes minds and shapes policies and and shapes how we treat one another so yeah story can be incredibly incredibly um destructive in, in how it directs our energies and perceptions of the world you know, to hear Isabel Wilkerson in, in her book, Cast, she talks about this mind-blowing experience for her. She's an African-American woman. She goes to Africa to present, and she teaches there, and she's talking about race. And um, uh, a Nigerian woman comes up to her and says, you know, we don't have any black people in Africa because they don't have that construct. You know, they don't, they don't tell that story of black and white and brown. We're just people here. Mm-hmm. And that's when she feels the, the, the destructive impact of this story that's shaped her whole mind that's so difficult not to see race once you've been told a story that, um, that focuses the attention on it. In the same way, we can tell stories that, um, that draw up a new and different kind of awareness. So, so let me give you an example. So I, do, I train community builders to use story. Two women uh, I got to work with Baton Rouge, they were working in a home with um, teenage girls who had basically been taken from their homes or had been abandoned, but they had no family. They lived in a halfway house together. And what these two women noticed was the teenage girls were, maybe it was through therapy, maybe it's through trauma, but they often just shared stories about suffering, about addiction, about the failure of their families, about hurt. And it drew up a certain kind of energy in them, right? Pain, trauma suffering. And what these two women did is they started asking these teenage girls different kinds of questions that drew forth stories that drew out different kinds of energies. So they would sit with these teenage girls and say, when was the time that you were brave or that you saw someone act courageously? And the girls would tell those stories and bravery would come into their body and courage would come into the room just by feeling and telling What's a time when you fell apart laughing, just could not stop They would tell these stories and they would start laughing, right? The, the, the stories would make bring that joy into the room. What was a time you were kind or you received kind? They'd tell kindness stories and kindness would come into the room. This is story as medicine. You know, this is how it brings that energy into the room. Now imagine if we got people together every week in our schools, told stories of reconciliation or justice or creative acts of love or whatever. We could... Reshape the mind towards those uh, capacities in, in our culture.
0: Well, and you, you talk about uh, the importance of um, in in offering alternatives to other stories. You know that stories that are told about you versus your own right. story. Yeah.
1: So of course, you know, part of the suffering is their stories told about us. I mean, I have a relative, and her par- their parents always called. Uh, their daughter, the problem. And then they would, to back that up, they would say, oh yeah, our daughter, like she, she's always the problem. Every time we go on a trip, she's the problem. And they would tell a story like that. Well, imagine growing up knowing yourself as the problem and having all these stories that reinforce that idea. That would get into the primal wiring of your brain and you would see yourself that way until some compassionate soul could say, Those are the stories your parents told for whatever reason, their own pain, their own trauma, their own fear about you or whatever. But that's not your story. You can tell, you can take off that story like taking off a piece of clothing and you can tell a different story about yourself based on different experiences. And that's where asking questions is important because it's like, tell me a story where you helped someone or you were kind to someone, basically where you were the answer, (laughs) not the problem. And you see another side of yourself you know, and you can begin to recognize that you have been, what does Rebecca Solnit says about story? She says that you've been, you've been living with a corset. You know, you've been living in a hobble skirt. You haven't been really living um, in clothes that you, could, that you
0: made yourself, you know. You put a strong focus upon the relationship between story and action.
1: Yes all stories invite some kind of action. Now, that action might be a new understanding of you or a new understanding of of the Native American experience in this culture. So it could be a change of mind. Um, But ultimately, a a story is is asking for us to live with uh, a different kind of awareness. And a lot of times those stories are inviting us to act. So when I Listen to friends of mine who are in our area in Southern Oregon are are working to um, protect the Klamath River or protect um, s- certain ecosystems. That develop that story is designed to move me to, to, to bring up a certain emotion that will act that will invite me to behave in a different way. Maybe that's to give money to them. Maybe that's to join them in a particular action. Maybe that's to be more mindful of how I treat the rivers and um, natural spaces around where I live. But all stories are, are, they want to move us. They're emotional communication that that are designed to help us respond with kindness and care.
0: Yeah. Um, You've got some wonderful uh, insights where you say, uh, sometimes your sacred story spends years searching for you. Mhm Wow. <laughs> Explain that, but: <laughs> Great, great.
1: Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, like like I was um this happens a lot when I'm working with storytellers, so So I was working with a man the other day who um, uh, basically he, he was terrified as a young man by the weather in the south. He lived in a particular state that has a lot of tornadoes. Tornadoes would come, and he would get frightened, and he lived with his mom. They lived in a mobile home, you know, which couldn't really withstand a lot of rain and wind, and he'd get frightened, and his mom would soothe him and make him feel like it's going to be okay. He goes on to become a weatherman, a meteorologist, then a climatologist, and it's a way to control this fear that he felt as a child. Like, I want, I want to understand all the patterns of wind and rain and storm. And he works in that region where he grew up. And he becomes the smartest guy in the state. He becomes a state official predicting all the weather patterns. But it's a, he, you know, he, and this was part of his story, he told me. Flash forward five or ten years. He's sitting in a NICU, you know, a native intensive care unit where his son has been born uh, eight weeks early. And he knows nothing, right? He doesn't know what's happening, the instruments on his sons uh, in, in this you know, uh, uh, native intensive unit with all these different wirings on him. And um, he doesn't know what to do about it. And he's frightened. And a doctor is trying to explain to him. And he's talking like he talks about climate. He's giving him all the numbers, names. And he realizes this is not helping. This information is not helping. And then there was a nurse who said, you know what? been in this situation, your son's going to be okay. And he feels that calmness and he makes a decision in that moment. I want to be like this nurse in the world. I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room who just gives the numbers. So he goes into teaching where he helps kids afraid about the, the weather and, and climate change and climate disasters. And he finds a way to help these kids know it's going to be okay. Now I helped him see that pattern. And once he saw it, he, he got very emotional. And he realized, I'm trying to carry the love that I felt from my mother. And I didn't realize it. You know, I want to carry, the, I want to be a someone who knows how to love others when they're afraid. So that's a sacred story to decide. I'm going to be a loving person in a fearful world and find out how to find other scared people. But he ha- that that story had been living in him and waiting. He just hadn't seen it yet. And once he saw it, he could move into it a little deeper. So our sacred stories do wait. And in those stories is the sacred presence itself. The reason the tears came into his eyes when he saw it is a recognition of a deeper force What we want to call divine love or divine compassion or the creator or the spirit uh, has been uh, living in him and through his mother and through his work in this beautiful way. And now that he sees it, he can move with that current with a greater gratitude and
0: uh, commitment. Well, that's the last question, uh, because I know you you, you got to go here to go to another department. Yeah. Um, and am I, am I saying his name right? Michael Soul. Yeah. Okay. Isn't that an interesting last name? Yeah. Uh, uh, talks about the importance that we need uh, to story our way forward, that we need to story our way out of despair, uh, story our way uh, into a more loving future Future.
1: yeah yeah the stories we tell about ourselves and the story we tell about our world are too small (laughs) they're too little and um we can create stories or we can find the stories that are already living in our communities and in other people that imagine just societies that imagine ways we could reconcile broken relations that imagine peace in ways that would set our hearts on fire that they could bring us to life um and it's those stories that dr- not only drive the imagination but move us emotionally to want to work towards those things so you know martin luther king we know that i have a dream and as he described that dream where he could see ch- black children white children, children walking hand as if we gave ourselves over to that dream, it could move hearts. And it does, it does to this day, it moves hearts to want to work towards racial reconciliation. Well, there are other deeper stories that are buried, like buried treasure, you know, in our culture and in, maybe in the margins of our society and in the world. And if we'll bring those stories forth, they can guide us into building the world we all long for, but are afraid to seek, you know, um, So I I interact with a lot of people in their 20s and 30s right now, young adults. There's a lot of despair that we're in the end times, that rivers are dying, oceans are dying, climate disasters, more fires, more floods. And many of them talk about, like, why have kids? And this is the story they're meditating on. And that story creates despair. And despair is a protective energy. I'm protecting my heart. I dare not long for anything different i will get hurt. But what they need is is stories that coax the heart out from behind those defensive postures, and that draw them towards love, because love is what brings peace, and love is what satisfies the soul, and 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 love ultimately is what's going to allow us to heal the brokenness around us. And love requires a love story. <laughs> that's what draws us out. So,
0: that that's what I mean by that. Well, I am deeply grateful uh, that you've. Allowed uh, to spend time with me today, and your work is vitally important. Uh, thank you. Thank uh, you. For the yeah, work you. Yeah. Do.
1: I, I appreciate the questions, which gives me a chance to reflect on these things. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe, and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings.